And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me on the phone line today is Dr. John Vance, the former pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York, now living in West Virginia. Pastor Vance, it's great to have you on with us today. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Dan. It's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah, it really has. And I, I do miss seeing you regularly, but uh, you're one of our board members here at Redeemer and certainly a very uh, important advisor. And so uh, thank you so much for taking the time and fitting us in today. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Christmas is right around the corner. In two days, it's Christmas, and kids are excited. Um, so far this season, we've had some snow. We're looking forward to Christmas. And uh, to get us started today, you know, it's in two days, but why why do we uh, celebrate on December the 25th? Is there any particular reason for that? Well, it's, it's complicated. Uh, let me put it this way. Uh, the church and families, mainly the church, has been worshiping uh, the incarnation of Christ at Christmas, his birth, since the fourth century. Christians initially didn't, uh, didn't make much of the special day. They made much more of his resurrection. But it was only in the fourth century, uh, three centuries later, that people began to observe Christmas as we know it. Well, not as we know it today. Many of the things that we do, they didn't do. It was a feast day on the Christian calendar. So uh, since the fourth century, it's, and it is odd how it began. Uh, there's an intriguing theory why uh, Christmas comes on December the 25th. And if you'll just give me a minute here, I'll try to unpack this. Early Christians believed, and probably the Jewish rabbis, that the creation took place on March the 25th. That's the first day of the spring equinox on the Julian calendar, not on our calendar. And so they believe that uh, creation took place then, that the new creation, God created all things new, and it began then. That was the time. Well, early Christians began to put two and two together that Jesus was the new creation, you will, that God is creating something new out of the old in Jesus, so they believe that he was conceived on March the 25th. And of course, if you add nine months to that, you get December 25th for his birth. So that's one theory uh, among several. Uh, I happen to think that uh, probably Christians began to observe Christmas because the Christological controversies in the early church came to full fruition about that time, and they were emphasizing once again that God had come in human flesh in Jesus Christ, and December 25th was probably combined with that, and they began to to observe December 25th. But it was a church feast on the calendar. They, they, they observed it in that way. It wasn't done much in the homes, and certainly not in secular society. They wouldn't know anything about it at that time. Well, that's helpful. Uh, now and then I'll, I'll look at um, other sources, uh, Facebook postings and that sort of thing, and, and there's, a, there's a segment of folks out there that feel that we should not celebrate Christmas, and so I, I want to be cognizant of that also, that some of those listeners may be tuning in today, and um, we happen to celebrate Christmas, but that's not to say that uh, we want to run roughshod over those who have a inclination to, to, to not celebrate it because of um, a more um, stricter interpretation from the, some of the reformers. 
Yes, uh, it is true that uh, some parts of the Reformation movements, particularly uh, our own, Dan, did not uh, as such observe Christmas. Now, Luther did, but when you got to Zwingli and some Reformers, uh, they certainly did not. And the Puritans really didn't either, uh, the early pilgrims and Puritans. That was their tradition. But uh, I take the view that, that I believe that St. Paul teaches is that these things are adiaphora, as Luther called it. That means things indifferent. You can observe it or not observe it. And uh, local churches will, will do that. And, of course, the mainstream of Christianity has always observed Christmas since particularly, uh, well, back through the Middle Ages all the way to the present. But uh, certainly I understand the conscience of those who believe that we shouldn't. Yeah. Well, um, given that we are going to be talking about it and celebrating it ourselves, and many of our listeners are, let's um, focus now on what does actually happen here? Why is it that we're celebrating? What is the significance of, of Jesus coming? Well, many of the great Christmas hymns and Christmas music celebrate, of course, the incarnation of Christ. And surely maybe the primary verse that you find in the Bible uh, concerning uh, this is John one fourteen, where it says, The Word became flesh. That is really what happened at the birth of Jesus. Well, I, actually, at the conception of Jesus. Uh, the Word became flesh, and it is God incarnate in, in our world. We believe, as uh, Christians who believe in the Trinity and in the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that in fact the fullness of God came into human flesh in space and time. Uh, In space, I say, because God, as a spirit, is not subject to the category of space or uh, dimensions. But God chose in the Son, Jesus Christ, in the virgin's womb, to become subject to our dimensional world. And that is an amazing thing. And God also, who's not subject to time in eternity, became time-bound, if you will, in the flesh of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so Jesus was born in the fullness of time. God sent forth, it says in Galatians 4.4, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So it was the incarnation of God himself taking up on human flesh and becoming a man like you and like me. It's uh, almost beyond the comprehension that um, the infinite uh, takes on the finite. One of the confessions declare that Jesus was fully man and fully God. Uh, That seems, um, I guess that's unique. I don't think that's ever happened before or after in history. That's true. It's uh, unique, or as theologians say, sui generis, one of a kind. Yeah. Uh, he was fully God and fully man, not half God and not half man, uh, not God in the appearance of flesh, but God became man. Uh, he remained uh, fully man throughout his life, and he remains fully God always. So we, we see that uh, played out in the New Testament, in the Gospels. It's an amazing story. It's the greatest story as Bishop Sheen, years ago, I don't know whether you remember him or not, that was a Catholic who appeared on the radio and television. I think I'm old enough to remember, a lot of people are not. 
And the title of his program was The Greatest Story Ever Told. <laughs> and this is The Greatest Story Ever Told. Yeah. So um, maybe people have heard the fact that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Um, what is the importance of each of those uh, as we consider? Let's say that he's fully God. Why is that important? Fully God because uh, he is eternal and infinite. And what he did for us as a man, if he simply was man only, his sacrifice for our sins would only be temporal, because human beings are temporal. But since he was also God, his eternal uh, salvation and his redemption of us on the cross, the atonement, has eternal consequences and effect. In other words, he paid the full price of our offense against the Godhead, and uh, and that's an eternal price of infinite value, and it could only be accomplished by one who was truly and fully human, and at the same time truly and fully God. Mm, yeah. Another portion of Scripture talks about him uh, being tempted in all points like we are. What's behind that? Well, Jesus, as a man, truly, fully a man, also had a human will. You know, there was a debate in the early church of whether Jesus had simply one will or two wills. Well, the church settled, and I think rightly so, in reading the Scripture, that Jesus has a will that's divine and a will that is human. And in his human will, of course, he could be tempted in all points as we are, but Scripture also clearly says that he did not sin because he is relying fully and completely upon the Spirit of God. He resisted every temptation, and that too is part of our salvation. Whereas we yield, he did not, and his perfect obedience also is part of our redemption. So can we look to, it's obvious I guess, but can we look to Jesus when we face temptation and look to him to help us through it, because he is the only one that, that really made it through. That is true. In his humanity, he made it through. He became an obedient son, mm. even unto the death of the cross. We call Jesus' incarnation also a humiliation, his humiliation. And he was, in one sense, God humiliated himself by becoming man, and even humiliated himself among human beings by suffering death on a cross. Mm. So Jesus' death on the cross was even humiliation by our standards, and that is the obedience that counts for us as righteousness, and also his example of resisting temptation. You know, his temptation in the wilderness were real. They were not fake or some kind of phantom temptations. They were real to him. He was tempted as to his glory. Would he be obedient to the Father, or would he not? And that is an example for us to follow, because we, too, have the Holy Spirit to help us to resist temptation. You know, temptation (laughs) this time of year is hard to resist. Yeah. Uh, You know, when I go to the table and see all these delectables, if you will, I get very tempted to uh, just sit down and have a feast. (laughs) (laughs) Overindulge, yes. Um, That's a good point, temptation and sin. He comes to uh, deal with our sin doesn't he? He certainly, he not only deals with our sin, as we strongly emphasize in the Protestant tradition, he paid the price for our sins, but he he is indeed our example, our exemplar, if you will, of how to overcome. 
In fact, Jesus, one famous theologian, uh, a Swedish theologian, wrote a book, and the name of the book is Christus Victor, The Victory of Jesus Over Mm. Sin, the Flesh, and the Devil. And he in himself overcame his temptations. And his victory, by the way, is our victory, too. Mm. Because we are incorporated into him in Christ. And I'm thankful that even though I stumble and fall, I know that my representative was faithful, and in the day of judgment, when I stand before the bar of God to be judged, I can point to the righteousness and victory of Christ mm, as counting for me. Yeah. What about that person that's out there today, um, just happened to tune past the dial, as it were, listening to this discussion and saying, well, here they go again. They're talking about something that happened a couple thousand years ago, Um that's not relevant to me, you know. That, that's um, any any words to that person that um, really doesn't appreciate um, the person of Christ and the work of Christ. Well, uh, Dan, that's a, a extraordinarily important topic, uh, particularly today. I was reading recently that uh, the younger generations, the millennials down, uh, really have no sense of history. They they don't study the past much. Now, of course, many do. There are exceptions. But for the most part, our young people are busy on their cell phones, computers, and we do not study history like we once did. So from a historical perspective, uh, they probably don't understand the time period and the history of the Church, much less the history of uh, salvation through the centuries. And So it's an important question. How can Christ be relevant to us today? Well, fortunately, I look at matters this way. Christ is active and operative in our world today through his Spirit. And uh, I preached a sermon uh, not too long ago, and the sermon I preached is that Christ is active and alive immediately in his church. Mm. And when I, I go to church and I hear the gospel, that which took place 2,000 years ago becomes contemporaneous with me through the Spirit. This is what Paul calls the power of the gospel. Mm. In worship, we rehearse this over and over every Lord's Day, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Sunday worship is about. Now, for people who don't go to church, that's a problem. They're not confronted with that reality. So therefore, I think it's incumbent upon us as Christians to carry out the Great Commission, that they too might know that story as we know it through our worship. Mm. And so, yes, it's difficult. Uh, we have a communication problem today. Yeah. Yeah, and you, you mentioned uh, cell phones, too. And um, uh, ironically, as you were mentioning that, my cell phone was ringing, and uh, someone was trying to get a hold of me. But um, maybe you found this, too. Uh, how many times has it been you sit down, Uh, with a very good book to read it and say, okay, finally I've got some time to read this book. And then um, the way my mind works, all of a sudden I find myself getting distracted and thinking, oh, i I got to check something on my cell phone, when in fact probably I didn't need to check something on my cell phone. I think we're, we're so easily distracted by these new devices as well as by the older ones, namely TV, that we uh, cut ourselves short of doing a more deeper dive, a more thorough reading of of what's available there on the printed page. 
Well, I think it's a profound observation you've just made. Uh, technology is changing the human brain, according to many scientists. And some of the ways of learning and processing knowledge, much less information, is being compromised uh, through these technologies. Uh, we're ceasing to communicate person to person. Uh, we're ceasing to communicate with the past through books and good literature. And therefore, the communication in the future is going to be different and compromised. Uh, I'm concerned about it. I, I have a granddaughter, and she already, at three years of age, going on four, I guess, uh, she's into this stuff. I mean, it just seems like it's the air you breathe. The, yeah. the uh, It's part of the atmosphere, and uh, it's a problem. I, I read of a, uh, a college out somewhere in the West, a new college that was started, and one of the one of the rules that they have there is no cell phones uh, are permitted on campus mm -hmm. because they're trying to combat this problem. And it is a problem, and it is a problem for Christians. We'll have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves to figure out how to solve this, but I'm not quite sure that we've bridged this uh, gap or solved this problem and uh, we we pray for the Spirit to give us wisdom and guidance in these matters and imagination how to overcome it. But it's yeah. a problem. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, a couple of times so far the importance of the Holy Spirit, and um, truly he is extremely important. Um, can you explain his role a little bit more as a person um, comes to receive Jesus Christ and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and how that He's relevant for us today. Um, explain the Spirit's role a little bit, if you would. Uh, thank you for the opportunity there. That's a, that's a great question. We're, we're uh, dealing with some profound issues, aren't we? The uh, Holy Spirit uh, came, of course, uh, that is in his fullness. He, the Holy Spirit's been around since the creation. Of course, he's God, too, the third person of the Trinity. But... Uh, He's uniquely associated with Christ in this sense that he is to witness to Christ, not himself. Furthermore, in the New Testament, in one place there, uh, it talks about the Holy Spirit in one verse and the, and the Spirit of, of the Son the next. Spirit of Jesus, that is. So he's closely identified, of course, with Jesus, and rightly so, because we believe that God, there is one God who subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are equal in power and glory. And so the Holy Spirit's role is to testify uh, to Jesus as to who he is and what he did for us, and he seals uh, our salvation in Christ. Uh, that is the work of the Spirit. But the Spirit is immediately present with us, and we experience the Holy Spirit uh, not separate from Jesus or separate from the eternal Word, but in and through him. Uh, the Reformers uh, made a, a, a wonderful observation, particularly Martin Luther, that to seek the Holy Spirit apart from Jesus would lead to fanaticism and all kinds of craziness because uh, it would be their own spirit in the end that they would be uh, feeling and their own spirit that would be guiding them and not the Holy Spirit because he guides us in and through Christ. 
So the Holy Spirit is immediately present in our world, and he is active. And And we talked about the problem of technology, and I think it is through the Holy Spirit finally and in the end that we will be able to overcome these cultural problems because uh, he, more than anyone, understands the problems and uh, has the power to overcome them. Now, we talked a little bit about the Lord Jesus himself and his incarnation, um, briefly about the Spirit. Um, what about the Father? There, there's This is a whole Trinitarian uh, mystery occurring here with Jesus coming. Can you talk about the Father now? Yeah, there is a there is a tendency in our thinking to split up the Trinity and and, and of course, they, there are three persons, and each person of the Trinity has a role. But in each person, the whole Trinity is acting. When uh, Jesus walked upon the earth uh, as a man, and yet fully God, uh, his love for us was also just an exhibit of God's love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and that wonderful hymn, that we sing this time of the year in particular of the father's love begotten. And it was the love of the father that sent the son. Amen. Uh, and he is a very expressed image of the love of the Trinity for us. As a matter of fact, that love is a seeking and searching love that God has for us. That's why he sent his son on a mission to rescue us from ourselves and our sin mm. and from uh, judgment. So, no, I would not. They're one in glory and power, but also in purpose <laughs> and love. So there is no distinction or division in the Godhead. I'm glad you mentioned the seeking and searching love of God. Um, at some point, as God opens our eyes, we we turn to Christ um, and and embrace Him. And uh, it on the surface, you know, it almost feels like we're searching for Him. We're you know, walking towards him. And and it's true, we are, but um, there's something behind that, isn't there? Oh, yes. Uh, we find him because he first found us. <laughs> we, and that's based on the verse, we love him because he first loved us. Yeah. The, the initiative uh, lies with God. Uh, we would know nothing about God after our fall in, in darkness and, and uh, sin without the revelation of God. Mm. If he had not revealed himself, he could remain silent. As Francis Schaeffer's book points out, God is there and he is not silent. Mm. And because he is not silent, we know something about God, and we know the love of God. Uh, the love of God is an interesting thing. It, 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 love is not so much an emotion. It's not so much a feeling. It's an action. Hmm. And God, in his love, acted to rescue us. Furthermore, love seeks the improvement of its object. And it's in Christ that seeking, searching love comes to us and confronts us uh, because God is love in his actions toward us, that we then are able to behold the love of God in Christ. And that love comes to us and perfects us. Finally, we will be what God intended for us to be through Jesus Christ as we grow in the grace and knowledge of him, and finally we are glorified in heaven. So that love of God uh, that we're talking about is surely a seeking and searching love that is God's actions to bring us and to adopt us into his family as his purified sons and daughters. 
That makes a great summary for our discussion today. We've been talking with Dr. John Vance, the former pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York, now living in West Virginia. And uh, Pastor Vance, um, tomorrow, God willing, will be going to church and uh, just having a, a wonderful service of worship uh, with fellow Christians as we uh, enjoy the presence of Christ, uh, the Trinitarian presence. So uh, we wish you a very Merry Christmas. All the same. Thank you. And uh, for you out there, I do wish all of you a Merry Christmas. This is uh, one of the great times of the year and, and wonderful to celebrate. Enjoy Christmas. Praise be to God. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. Very Merry Christmas, and the Lord be with you. Run.